You're listening to The Only Constant, a podcast about active hope. In today's conversation, we spoke with Alexis Dorman. Alexis serves as the president of FSU Democrats and of the Florida College Democratic Caucus. Balancing a rich academic life with activism, she's been a strong advocate for a multitude of social issues from a young age. There is a need for young people to really speak up for the things that they believe in. I think that, you know, Gen Z and, you know, a lot of the younger people here in Florida especially kind of need to take the reins and, you know, push politics and, and, you know, the state in the direction that we want to see because this is our future, right? At the end of the day, we're the people who are going to be moving into the workforce and living here for much longer. Shedding light on the increasing acceptance of young individuals in elected offices, Alexis stresses the necessity for young people to take charge with activism and to foster change in their communities. Hopefully, you find some hope today. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Let's start with your name and your pronouns. Alexis Storman. Pronouns are she, her. Well, thank you, Alexis, for coming on. And I, before I start with the first passion that you sent us, because <laughs> today's conversation is going to be awesome. I can already tell. Um, I want to just start out with your involvement and everything government related, because you just said, like when I first met you walking in my house, well, the first thing you said, right? Um, but one of the first things you said was that you knew you wanted to do what you're doing since second grade. Yeah, I, I just for a little bit of background, I'm a junior at Florida State University pursuing dual degrees in international affairs and political science with minors in Chinese and education. I, you know, knew that I wanted to get into politics and law, legal studies. Back in second grade, I did student council in elementary school, was involved in Model United Nations and Future Business Leaders of America in middle and high school. And then coming to FSU, I got very involved with FSU College Democrats. I'm now the president of FSU Democrats and uh, the newly elected president of the Florida College Democratic um, caucus. Hmm. I'm involved with, you know, student government a little bit. I did an internship at the Capitol last session. Um, it, this is all things that I'm super passionate about. I do some, you know, activism and organizing on campus with organizations like PERG, Public Interest Research Group, and Students Demand Action. Um, it's all things that I really enjoy. It keeps me busy, but I always say, you know, I like what I'm doing so it doesn't feel like work and it, you know, it keeps me um, involved and engaged in the things that I'm really passionate about. So. Oh my God, the list just keeps going. Uh, <laughs> this is awesome. Um, I was about to say it like, that's it. That's all you do. Right? <laughs> well, I was going to ask actually, ahead, you kind of yeah. said it, uh, but real quick before we actually dive into all of your stuff, you know, you'll probably be doing something in the future with law and politics. Uh -huh. And I think we kind of think of politicians and these people in the legal system as like robots sometimes, and you are doing a lot. And just real quick, I'm curious, how do you balance, you know, being a human with being involved with all these kind of important and heavy things? Yeah, I think that having an outlet is really important. I've always been somebody who really enjoys the arts. I danced all through elementary, middle and high school. Um, I enjoy, you know, drawing and calligraphy and that sort of thing. So, you know, I do art a lot in my free time. Um, I do some fun stuff like the Chinese yo-yo. I perform... Um, oh, man, the Chinese yo-yo with my sister at cultural events back in Orlando. That was always fun to do in practice. Whoa, yeah. um, 
And, and, you know, I do all of the things that I think college students enjoy doing, too. I hang out with my friends. I, yeah. you know, listen to music, drive around. hang out with friends? Get out <laughs> of here. Wait, what? <laughs> That's uh, awesome. I think that, that I, I also had the impression that politicians are, you know, people who, who do nothing but work. But the internship really did show me that, you know, politicians, especially those in the Democratic Party, which is where I spend a lot of my time, are real people, too. These are people who, you know, have families and dogs, and they would bring their dogs to the Capitol, um, <laughs> you know, enjoy cool. their free time. Um, there's this thing called, like, Wonderful Wednesdays that the Democratic Party does, where all of the members get together to eat dinner um, on Aww. Wednesdays after session. Uh, a lot of them are friends with each other, and, and you know, it it is um, really humanizing to be able to see that, you know. Um, Interesting. That, That's awesome. That politicians are people too. That's yeah, cool. That actually yeah. offers like a human insight into the whole thing. Exactly. So that's actually really cool. Yeah. And I think if more people knew that, you know, I think people would be more engaged because, you know, it's more relatable. and, and They're people. Yeah, exactly. Just like Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I'm super, I feel like today's going to be a wonderful example of how people can do the things that you're doing and still feel like a person. <laughs> yeah. um, well, let's start out with your first passion, which is, let me hold up my handy dandy paper here, activism and advocating for what you believe in. And I know that you just went on a whole list of the things that you advocate for, mm -hmm. um, but I want to know why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, I think that I, especially coming to college, realized that there is a need for young people to really speak up for the things that they believe in. I think that, you know, Gen Z and, you know, a lot of the younger people here in Florida especially um, kind of need to take the reins and, you know, push politics and, and you know, the state and the direction that we want to see because, you know, we're going to be, this is our future, right? There's a lot of people in this state that, you know, are older, have lived here for a long time, and, you know, their their opinions are valuable, but um, at the end of the day, we're the people who are going to be moving into the workforce and living here for much longer. Um, and you see young people standing up for the things that they believed in, and I think, you know, seeing some of that stuff happen down in Orlando really inspired me to get involved. Um, you know, particularly, we saw House Bill 999, which was the DEI ban, and uh, bills like House Bill 543 and 1543, um, permitless concealed carry, and lowering the age to purchase a firearm that directly impact, um, you know, people our age. And there weren't a lot of people that I saw standing up for it. So I worked with, you know, other passionate people on Florida State's campus um, to organize, educate the college community, and really, you know, more importantly, than anything else, empower others to, to speak what they believe in. And, and we saw that a lot of people, you know, agree with us that these are things that, you know, students don't want to see happen. And when you have people who are organizing and providing the platform for others to speak out, um, I think it's more powerful. Um, hmm. It sends a more powerful message. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, I'm just going to ask you a quick question. Um, when it comes to choosing what to believe in mm -hmm. passionately mm -hmm. and i and and uh i know it's kind of a weird question but at the same time it seems like there are many things that our generation is being faced with mm -hmm. because as you like we're moving into the workforce this is our future right we're going to be here for a bit longer even though that those older perspectives are still valuable we need to think about how our life is going to be mm -hmm. and then i know that it is commonplace for people our age to feel as though there is just too much mm -hmm. to take on. So how do you go about deciphering the things to attack first? 
Yeah, absolutely. I Attack think, in a friendly way. Yes. <laughs> I think that, that you can't be the champion of everything, and that's completely okay. I think the important thing is that you support the people around you who are the champion of a specific issue. So for me, for example, I focused a lot on, you know, things that were related to higher ed um, this past legislative session. And, you know, I really put my time and energy in that. And that meant that I was doing the organizing for things like that. But then, you know, I have really good friends that are champions of, you know, standing up for LGBTQ plus rights and, you know, issues like that. And going to those protests and showing my support and uplifting those voices in any way that I could was something that I was able to do without, you know, exhausting myself to the point that I felt like I wasn't able to, you know, provide my efforts in a way that could be more impactful. And I also think that, you know, we need the people who feel most related to the issues really at the forefront of the movement. Um, so, you know, if I if I get up there and I'm advocating for, you know, LGBTQ plus rights, it's, it's great. But, you know, if I don't feel as, um, you know, related to those issues, um, it's not going to leave, you know, the strongest impact um, in comparison to like what some other people can do. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, being able to, to realize that it's not just about one person, but it's about a group of people and working together um, as a unit to, you know, carry out long-term goals, um, you know, that's what's most important because mm. things are not going to change overnight. Um, I think that we need to be prepared for a long-term movement and that requires stamina. So, you know, Involving as many people uh, that want to to be a part of the organizing and, and activism and everything um, mm. will ensure that that this can be um, the longevity of the movement. Mm. So here's a question: mm-hmm. How do you change the perception <laughs> that young people are? There's so many perceptions of young people. Mm-hmm. We're lazy. I don't know. We're entitled. We're, you know, looked down upon really by many older people. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what you're saying, it seems like there's a lot of passionate people who are our age. Um, how do you, you know, what do you think we need to do to change that perspective? Is it kind of out of our control? I think that it's a lot of educating um, and ensuring that, you know, young people stick together it's you know making sure that we don't have young people saying that you know i'm different than everybody else because i think that a lot of people do want to be involved they just don't know how to get involved and that's where you know providing accessible resources is really important i also um you know learned over the last year that when young people show up together it really does change people's perspectives about um what we what we think about and and what we want to do. For example, we organized a demonstration at the Florida Board of Governors meeting that took place at FAMU's campus. Um, We had over 150 students show up. A lot of us went and sat inside the Boggs meeting and President McCullough approached us um, with an interest in talking to us about how we felt about uh, some of the things that were being introduced in the legislative session and what FSU can do to, you know, ensure that our students are being provided for um and he this is something that he had wanted to do he wanted to reach out and you know receive student perspectives he just didn't know who to go to so i think that 
Um, it is a miscommunication between like, you know, younger people and older people. I think that a lot of times older people do want to hear the perspectives mm -hmm. of young people and better understand, you know, why we're standing up for the things that we're standing up for. It's just, you know, young people also have to have a willingness to have those conversations with people, um, despite, you know, preconceived notions that they might have about us. Definitely. Mm. Well, I think this serves, I'm going to go ahead and Skip down a few <laughs> um, on the list of your passions because I think this segues perfectly into representation of young people mm -hmm. in elected offices. Mm -hmm. And I think you're a perfect example of that, right? And it seems like from all the examples you've provided so far, mm -hmm. there is an impact that can be made, but there's also a lack of representation for people our age. Mm -hmm. so go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, after we saw Maxwell Frost get elected um, as the first Gen Z member of Congress, we've seen that a lot of people are more open to the idea of having Gen Z representation in elected offices. Um, you see more youth um, interested in, you know, running for elected office and getting more involved in politics, because I think that young people identify more with, you know, people like Maxwell, who you know, get up on stage at a Paramore concert and, and you know, speak their mind. Um, I, I also think that, you know, it's important that we have young people supporting the young people who are running. And that's something that I'm working on as the president of um, FCD, Florida College Democrats. Um, I'm working with Florida Young Democrats and Florida High School Democrats, as well as some other organizations to really focus on turning young people out to vote and, you know, getting candidates on the ballot who will excite young people. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially in Florida, we've had this issue where people our age don't feel like it's necessary to vote or they don't feel like they should make the trip out to do that just mm. because they don't identify with any of the candidates on the ballot. And the easiest way to turn people out to vote is to find somebody who's exciting and, you know, really appeals to to the younger voters mm -hmm. um, and this is like ages 18 to 40 so we're not even talking about you know people in college it's so much it's so much more than that and <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the average age of a congressman i think is like over the age of 50 or 60 um i wouldn't quote me on that but i do know that that um there's a lot of really old people in congress and you know more power to you if you can do it at that age but um you know it's it's time for for us to to get some younger voices in there as well yes and we had you know it's interesting i can give a little i'll give a small personal example mm -hmm. um like my education i got a bfa in acting mm -hmm. um and by the way i'm glad you do artsy stuff in your free time <laughs> that's cool um but my i'm not gonna include any insults or anything like mm -hmm. that i'm just gonna say that my teachers were tenured mm -hmm. and their perspectives did not change with an art form that is constantly changing, right? So there was some pushback when it came to the student body and the mm -hmm. teachers. And I can only imagine what that might be on the political level when they're making decisions for the entire country, right? Rather than just a student body in one college. So my question, I guess what this is leading into is, I guess to Ted's point, can perspectives truly be changed or is it a matter of waiting until they can no longer uh, do the things that they're doing? 
I feel like it's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I absolutely think that perspectives can change with time. And I think there are a few good examples of people who really, um, you know, do fight for the youth in, in elected offices. There's definitely some people in the Florida State House that, you know, have worked with youth their entire lives. They have a background in, you mm. know, education and things like that. And mm. they really understand and value the youth perspective. But I think that the reason that we don't see perspectives change all that often is because people have a problem giving away some of the control. Um, mm. You know, when you allow younger people to work for you, when you surround yourself with younger perspectives and you have a willingness to really um, you know, take constructive feedback and grow as a person, um, maybe from somebody who you think doesn't have as many life experiences as you. I think that that makes you a more well-rounded person, a more effective legislator in, in just terms of politics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's true for everything, right? Like, you know, in the medical field, I think it's important for doctors to listen to, you know, younger doctors or scientists that are still experts in the field. Um, regardless of their age or, you know, how credible um, an older doctor might deem them. Um, and it's the same thing for politics. And I think that if you're unable to do that, um, you might not be as effective in legislating. And, you know, that's when it's time to to look for, you know, new legislators. So I'm not mm -hmm. saying that we need to get rid of all of the old people in office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more, um, you know, we, we need people who are willing to speak up um, even in times when they might feel um, uncomfortable doing so or, you know, they might be, feel like um, they're giving away some of the control that, that they've had for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So on that same token, mm -hmm. um, this might be – this is sort of a – I don't want to say it's a touchy question, but it's definitely – I think there could be a little bit of, like, loaded stuff behind it, which is, like, there's a perception in our country right now that if you're a Democrat – you hate Republicans. That's just how it is, right? And if you're Republican, you hate Democrats. And so... At least according to the platform you listen to, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so from your perspective, does it really... Obviously, Florida is going through a time right now, so that is probably changing some mm -hmm. perspectives. But in your view, having worked, having interned at the, at the Capitol and being involved with Democratic organizations... Is that the sentiment all around? Obviously, in both groups, there's going to be people who are more outspoken than others. Mm -hmm. But I feel like most people are pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. This is actually something that I've thought about a, a lot recently and, you know, something that I personally have struggled with. I think that, um, like you said, it is very loaded when somebody openly admits that they're a Republican in my eyes, you know, my... I have a certain perception of what a Republican looks like, but I think it's really important to decipher what a regular Floridian or American citizen voter looks like as opposed to somebody who's actively, um, you know, writing laws and legislating against certain rights. Um, and that's mm -hmm. an, an important uh, distinction. distinction to make. Um, I think that that most people, I believe that most people are good and they, you know, have the best intentions in, you know, voting for the people that they choose to vote for. And I think that it really is, um, you know, misinformation and 
Um, or lack of information. Right, la- lack of accessible information and resources mm. um, that, you know, results in, in some of the things that we see. Um, just to give an example, um, there are only two Spanish-speaking state representatives in the Florida House that are Democrats, and there are, I think, like five or six uh, Republicans that speak Spanish. So when you have so many Spanish speakers in Florida that are listening to news channels like Telemundo um, or Univision, uh, a lot of the information that they're receiving is from the Republican Party just because there's more Hispanic representation in the Republican Party. Uh, these Republicans are really able to control the narrative out of, um, about what's happening. So when I say um, misinformation, I do think it's really important that we hear from all sides. I think that we need Republicans providing their perspectives just as much as we need Democrats to provide their perspectives. But I think there needs to be um, you know, equal representation of those perspectives so that people can make decisions for themselves. And unfortunately, you know, where we are today, I, I don't think a lot of people receive, um, you know, information from all sides, um, just because, you know, you, you, a lot of people listen to one news channel, and that's it. Um, and, and it's not the voters fault for for choosing to do that. I think that that's an issue with the institution and that, you know, mm-hmm. the people who are elected to serve the people need to be working towards making information more accessible. And also the media companies themselves mm-hmm. profit exactly. off of people getting upset, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. So oh, that's a whole lobbyists. other that's yeah. a whole other issue, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But so that's cool. That's cool. That sorry. That's no. cool that you uh, I think that that speaks volumes because the we when we think about the United States and the issues it's going through at the moment, you know, it's so easy. It's good to stay in the moment and it's good to fight in the moment. But as you're talking about this whole time, there's young people coming up. And the more I've talked to people in our generation, the more I really think we all, yeah, of course, you're going to have people who are really combative about mm-hmm. Republicans or or Democrats there's young Republicans who are the same way right Mm -hmm. but again I do think there's like a real perspective in the same way that information has made us divided in many Mm -hmm. ways it's really made us aware of of that division and why it's happening and making us critically think about what's causing that and everything you said is part of it. And I think we're all becoming aware of that and we're going to change it. So. Yeah, there's still hope mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> Heck, yeah, there is. We love hope. Um, but to Ted's point and to uh, your affirmation of his point, there are, just like just as there are old Republicans and Democrats, there are young Republicans and Democrats. And my question for you is what you think truly of the two-party system. Yeah, I think that there is a need for complete reform. I think that just as much as we see issues with the Republican Party, there are also so many issues, you know, um, on the other side as well. I think that, you know, the Democratic Party does reflect my personal values more so than the Republican Party, which is why I identify as a Democrat and why I want to help be a part of that change. Part of the reason that I've, you know, chosen to take on positions with the Florida Democratic Party. Um, I think I think that, you know, Trump has completely changed the way in which um, we look at politics. He he completely um, changed the Republican Party. And I don't think it was anything that 
wasn't going to happen. I think that it was just simply expedited by the way that politics has looked in the past, you know, several years. Um, but but I think that young people are waking up and seeing that there is a need for complete reform. I mean, we see issues with climate change and gun violence and, you know, we had a huge pandemic that, that divided people and, you know, our education system is inaccessible for so many people. Um, we have, you know, a ton of poverty in the United States and, and young people being able to, you know, realize that and acknowledge that there are ways to, you know, help people and be willing to do that is what we need to, to really see change. And it's a process. So, you know, if our generation or, you know, even some of the generations above us who, you know, have worked to make significant strides in the right direction, um, you know, we're going to have to continue doing that. And it's not just an upward um, motion. I think that we have, you know, seen some ebb and flow. Um, and that's okay. We just have to keep, you know, treading in the right direction. And, mm. and I think that, you know, as a result, we'll have a more, you know, positive future for everybody. Mm. I, by the way, I really appreciate the fact that, um, in a weird way, you were like, change is the only constant. And I yes. do appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for that plug. Uh-huh. Um, but it is true. It's like change is happening regardless. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like, just accept it, uh-huh. you know, but, I think it also just kind of comes down to like the time in which we expect that change to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, how soon or how far away will that take place? Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate you maintaining a positive perspective when it seems like obviously you are juggling, as Ted said earlier, somewhat loaded and heavy things, mm-hmm. right? But it is so important, it seems like, to maintain this clear vision mm-hmm. of what you need to attain. Mm-hmm. because it's so easy, I'm sure, and I, it's not like I can speak to it firsthand, I'm not in politics, but I'm sure it's so easy to get caught up in this, the minutia, the stuff that really doesn't matter in the moment. It's like you had to keep the future in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in, in a lot of ways, there are a lot of us who seemingly disagree, agree on a lot more things than we would think. <laughs> it's the buzzwords that really do you know, cause the chaos. And that's what (laughs) the people at the top of the food chain want. Mm. Um, They they want to see the chaos because, you know, at the end of the day, we see the Republican establishment is this older, rich, you know, white majority that is realizing that they no longer have a hold on the system in the way that they would want. They're reaching for absolutely anything to be able to keep control and, you know, the more that we're able to, you know, chip away at that, the the more change that we'll see come. And with that, you know, requires conversations because I think a lot of people who do, you know, vote or identify with the Republican Party are not a part of what that establishment would be. Yeah. And, and, you know, they just want what's best for their families. They want to be able to put food on the table, um, you know live in the same way that all of us want to live they sound um, like humans exactly yeah so, so, you <laughs> because know, they are those, <laughs> those conversations is really important but i and i i really do appreciate the positive perspective yeah. you maintain because it is so important and it seems like regardless of age you maintain that perspective so i appreciate that seriously so break's coming up in a second i have one more question for you before we do that um how 
do you feel about lobbyists? Because both sides have lobbyists. And I'll just state my opinion. I think that just like we've tried to separate church and state, I think we should separate business and state. I'm just curious on your opinion, though, because I know lobbyists do help politicians get the word out. Mm -hmm. So... I think that there is a very big difference between the lobbyists that are being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, the student lobbyists that are a part of, you know, SGA that Mm. go in to, to talk about things that they identify in and believe in. And I do think that when you have these lobbyists that are getting paid a lot of money or are working for organizations that are able to fund entire campaigns, it does, you know, cause corruption in the system but what's the the alternative is there is there a way to change this i'm not completely sure Mm -hmm. um but i have seen that you know there are people who vote against their personal beliefs or against the beliefs of their constituents because they know that this organization is willing to donate thousands tens of thousands of dollars to their re-election campaign and i think that there is a a balance to addressing that i think one of the things that we need to do is you know term limits and you know ensure that a lot of these positions have term limits that people can't you know take advantage of the positions that they have i think there shouldn't be so much of an emphasis on re-election or you know campaigning i understand that these representatives this is their job so a lot of them just like you know, every other normal person wouldn't want to lose their job. A state representative also doesn't want to lose their job. But um, if we remove some of that focus on campaigning, I think we would, you know, um, lobbyists wouldn't be so much of a problem. And I think, you know, in the same light, I, I think that we should be focusing and highlighting the voices of, you know, students and everyday people that are coming to the Capitol to lobby. I know that DACA recipients and Dreamers came to the Capitol this past session to lobby for, you know, the things that they believe in. And these are people that have, you know, personal experiences to share with with um, legislators um, that, you know, complement some of the initiatives that they're hoping um, make their way through the legislature. And I think that that's more impactful, more effective in you know, getting people to change their mind and vote a certain way. Mm. And um, I think it's more, you know, human. I don't think that we need, I don't think that there's a need for these these lobbyists that, you know, don't feel personally related to the issues that they're lobbying for. Um, but I don't, I don't see them going anywhere, <laughs> so. But I do like that you brought up, instead of targeting the lobbyists themselves, you target the reason that they can mm-hmm. lobby in the first place. Yeah, 100%. And we're going to head to the break in just a second. Um, And I just wanted to say we've been throwing a lot of, like, heavy questions at you. And I just want to say I think you've been answering everything with, like, really great answers and articulation Mm. and very clear. So that's awesome. We're just bobbing along. (laughs) (laughs) We will be right back, everybody. Woohoo! We'd like to take a second to shout out our monthly patrons. Thank you to Aaron B., Christina S., Corbin G., Dan W., Mimi S., Kareem A., and Luciano B. for their continuous support of the podcast. Everything we do on this show wouldn't be possible without the generous support of listeners like you. 
consider joining us on Patreon, where for just a dollar a month, you can support the podcast and help us even more in the conversation about active hope. Now, back to the episode. Hello, everyone, and we are back. Patreon ad gets better every time. Um, I want to start with accessible resources for immigrants and refugees. I know you have some personal ties to this question. Um, You touched on... Go ahead. Yeah, your previous education, where that all started. Yeah, so my grandma's actually from Taiwan. My granddad was in the Air Force, so mm-hmm. he met her while stationed in Taiwan. Um, my dad was born in Okinawa, Japan. Um, they ended up in Jacksonville where they. my dad met my mom. Everybody moved to Orlando. Um, and my dad never learned Chinese or Japanese or anything like that. Um, but my grandma really wanted my sister and I to, to know Mandarin. Um, so we started at a Chinese school. Um, every Saturday for 15 years, I would spend two hours studying traditional Mandarin Chinese, conversation, wow. writing, reading. I had a tutor uh, once a week on top of that, and I am still not fluent in Chinese, but we'll get there one day. It's <laughs> with time and, and practice, um, you know, I'm hoping to, to get there. But I was exposed to, you know, a lot of the Chinese American community in Orlando, the um, Asian American community. I was also involved with my Buddhist temple back in Orlando. Hmm. Um, I was a part of like a group of young people. So I met a lot of young Chinese and Asian Americans. Um, I, you know, got really involved with that community. Like I said, my sister and I do the Chinese yo-yo. We actually do it for the Chinese school. So we teach, um, we taught young people uh, young students, I guess they were little kids, like three, <laughs> four, um, all the way up to like 13, 14 years old Chinese yo-yo. My sister's the teacher now because obviously I'm here, but I occasionally go back to perform. Um, but that was my earliest exposure with, you know, a lot of, um, you know, immigrants in, in Orlando in the state of Florida. I then in high school did some volunteering um, with organizations that worked with refugee students. And I saw that the majority of organizations that work with young immigrants and refugees are either religiously focused or providing basic necessities that uh, kids would need to, you know, adjust to a new environment after moving um, to a new country. Hmm. But they don't focus on, you know, providing educational opportunities and educating families on the way that the public school system works and how to best, you know, provide for uh, their students academically. So I I actually started an organization called CAFIR, which stands for Career Aid for Young Immigrants and Refugees. Um, And we work with immigrant and refugee students in um, providing educational opportunities that are applicable to the real world. So We take what students learn in elementary school, middle school, and we um, provide real-life simulations to how that can be applied to future careers. So just to give an example, um, I think a lot of students do Hour of Code with Khan Academy. Um, When they're in elementary school, we have codable robots, so we would bring those, and students would have the opportunity to practice code with them and use those to, what? to you know, fulfill a mission to outer space or whatever. And it really, you know, makes learning fun. And I think that I was lucky enough to have so many teachers growing up that 
you know, made learning fun for me and it made me want to continue to pursue education um, because I think a lot of students don't feel connected to mm. what they're learning. Um, they're not as eager about it. So I want to bring the fun back into learning. Um, when I was in high school, we worked with, um, you know, probably about 100 students in schools and then COVID hit and we did an online program. I started a little YouTube channel um, and we grew our volunteer base. Now we have about 25 volunteers and a lot of the the volunteers are still in Orlando. So we still are active and doing things, you know, virtually on social media. We hosted a workshop last year at um, a public library that was open to all, you know, students and, and really focuses on you know, providing resources that are free and accessible to, you know, immigrant and refugee families that might not, you know, be able to afford private resources or, you know, not know where to go to seek those. Um, but it also, you know, works to once again humanize what immigrant and refugee families look like in the state of Florida. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who don't understand that immigrants are the backbone of our economy in Florida, that, you know, they are people too. So, um, you know, being able to connect, you know, families that might have come from other places to, you know, families that have grown up in Florida, you know, have been here for generations, I think is also really important because, again, it, it you know, provides, you know, personal, it creates like a personal connection hmm. um, to an issue that I think is really controversial and it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you said that immigrants were the backbone of, I mean, the state's economy or just like how it functions, right? Yes. But also, we're a, we're a nation built on immigration, yes. man. I mean, it's just crazy. We're, an in a way, we're all immigrants, right? Yes. I mean, unless you're Native American. Um, but I will say that when it comes to your personal experience with it, I wanted to open up the second half with it because I think it's nice how you took your familial connection to it and you've slowly turned it into somewhat of like a career driver mm -hmm. for you. Um, it doesn't have to be just like a hobby for you. You know what I mean? I know you're going to ask. Mm, Go ahead. I don't have anything. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I am curious when it comes to the resources that can be provided for these people and the education that comes with it. I mean, the next thing you're passionate about is education at all levels and the opportunity mm -hmm. that comes with it. But sticking with immigrants and refugees specifically, I think it is – you bring up a good point how the public school system is a beast in and of itself, mm -hmm. right? And how that operates, how you're supposed to just get enrolled, and the different criteria that you have to meet, right, mm -hmm. in order to graduate, so on and so forth. Or even if, like, for example, even getting into, I know this is the next level of education, but getting into FSU, mm -hmm. every year the scores raise. Mm -hmm. It's insane. If I tried to apply to FSU now when I did, I wouldn't get in. There's no way. I'd be, like, on the bottom tier, right? Mm -hmm. And... It's as these standards raise, it seems like the pressure increases on people our age. But what's interesting is that I feel like we are not actually absorbing all of the information that we're being taught, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least being told to memorize. <laughs> so when it comes to a person who's not been in America and all of a sudden they're put in a position where it's literally just like a memorization of facts to take a test, to get a good grade, to get in a good college. And then all of a sudden you get to college and... Learning turns fun. Whoa, mm -hmm. what a concept, right? Which I also really appreciated. But how would you go about walking an immigrant or refugee through that process? Let's say you were able to sit down with them 
or and someone who's never been in that case, let's say they're sitting right next to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the steps? Are there clear steps to take? Yeah, I think it's really important to note that is college admissions really, you know, difficult in, you know, being able to achieve the scores or is it important to understand the system in order to you know, finagle your way into receiving those scores. I think Hmm. standardized tests like the SAT and ACT are, um, you know, very easy to do well on when you understand how to take the test. These aren't (laughs) exams that are really, you know, it's all content that you learned and everybody's learning in high school. Um, It, the, the difficulty comes with, you know, understanding how you're supposed to read the passages in order to, you know, be able to answer the questions most efficiently or the order you're supposed to do the math questions to, you know, be able to make it to all of them or, you know, understanding which formulas formulas to use um, when. So I mm-hmm. think that that you see like a lot of these people who are getting into you know, colleges that are really difficult to get into and have, you know, perfect scores on their SAT or ACT, um, you know, for some of them, it's important to, you know, look at how much their families were paying for private tutoring for the SAT Mm -hmm. or ACT. And I think that that's what a lot of people, you know, have to say about standardized exams. But if we can bring those tips and tricks, you know, to students who might not be able to afford private tutoring, um, you know, I think that, that the admissions process is a lot more accessible. So that's that's one thing. Mm-hmm. I also think that how you write your college admissions essay plays a very big role in, you know, whether or not you'll get into a university. There's there is things that admissions officers are looking for to get into when admitting students into their school and I think that when you have parents that might not have been educated in the United States, didn't go to college or university in the United States and don't know how to help with the common app or, mm. you know, college admissions, don't know where to look. I think like a lot of people don't even, you know, know what colleges and universities are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, both my parents have bachelor's degrees, but they um, – their bachelor's degrees are from, you know, long enough ago that they weren't able to help me a ton with the Common App. And I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, seek resources, you know, from my school and, and you know, online and on my own um, to, to navigate that system. Mm-hmm. But it's really just, you know, with the resources being provided, I think that, that things are inherently more accessible. So, the same goes for public school. I think when you're able to understand the system and the resources that are available to students, um, you know, students will perform better. I think that, you know, you have immigrant refugee families that come and their students are being put in public school and they're not aware that, you know, if their student is struggling, they might qualify for an IEP or a 504 plan that will help them, you know, down the line when taking standardized exams and, you know, provide what's best. And I think that um, there's a lot of public school systems and, you know, districts that don't have the personnel or the resources to be able to inform every single student. And that's not, um, you know, I'm not blaming the districts or the public schools. I think that we need people to step up and, you know, work to share the knowledge and and provide the resources, you um, to other people because, you know, going back to the 
the the point that when everybody um, is working together and you know sharing what they know and willing to give up some control over the things that they have i think that everybody will do better you know as mm. a whole mm. just great. to give some perspective on that too it's like <clears throat> i don't even know <laughs> what the testing things are like i know the act and uh-huh. the sat is still a thing but it's like i had the fcat uh-huh. when i was in school mm-hmm. it's like that's i remember hearing that that wasn't a thing anymore mm-hmm. and then we started getting like what was it called fsa uh-huh. or something mm-hmm. i don't even know if that's still what it is it's the fast exam now and they talk like, about like what like there's so it changes <laughs> i i don't even i'm sure there's similar questions and stuff but it's still like what <laughs> what are my kids gonna do? yes and when things are changing so fast it's impossible to keep up especially when you don't speak english or yeah. you know you have two parents that are both working two or three jobs i mean the last thing that they're worried about is reading the you know curriculum that their students are going to be receiving in 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 Mm -hmm. school well i think this is i mean might as well segue right to the uh importance of education Mm -hmm. at all levels and the opportunities that come with them i mean it's obviously a very clear transition from one to the next but it is Mm -hmm. so true that based on the degree or diploma, whatever you might have, that gets your foot in the door to a lot more Mm -hmm. places compared to others. What I think is so interesting is that there really is such an importance of education at all levels, but it seems like the appreciation for it starts in college. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. And for somebody like me, it was never a question. I was going to college and I was also pushed to, uh, you know, I'm still being, yes, I took 19 AP classes. I was... I, I was really pushed all through high school to, you know, get into the the best programs that I could. Um, you know, I'm still being pushed by my family to, you know, go seek uh, postgraduate, you know, educational degrees as well, just because um, I think now even more we're seeing that, like, bachelor's degrees are not valued in the same way that they once were. You need a master's degree or a, a jurisdictional doctorate, whatever, in order to you know, really receive the income that you deserve. And I don't think it should be like that. And Mm -hmm. I do think that um, we undervalue the education that you're receiving at some of the most, you know, uh, premier, the most important years of your life Mm -hmm. where, where you are absorbing the most stuff. And I think that, you know, students go to elementary school and and you're a sponge. You want to learn all of these things. You still are excited about education. And um, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, students are sometimes beaten down um, by the system that by the time they get to middle and high school, they don't want to be in school anymore. Um, and I, think I didn't. That, right, exactly. <laughs> and I think that we can change that by, you know, providing more resources to our teachers. Um, I think that teachers are swamped with so many things that, you know, are not in the job description for mm-hmm. not proper compensation. And because of that, when a teacher doesn't want to be teaching because they're not being, you know, compensated as much as they should or, you know, they're not being provided with the resources that they need to meet the needs of 35, 40 students because, you know, um, classrooms are, you know, overfilled, um, Hmm. then that reflects on the students. So I think, again, it starts with, you know, changing the system and maybe we reevaluate what students are being taught too. I think that it's important to have some of those um, 
classes that show application. I think that as much as it's important to make sure that students know how to read and write and do basic math, um, it's also important to keep up with the times and ensure that students are technologically educated, that they know how to use a calculator. Why are we forcing students in, you know, algebra to do things in their head that a calculator can do for them when in the real world they're always going to have a calculator? <laughs> yeah, for real. Focus some of that time on, you know, really appealing to to what the students want to learn and, and you know, fostering a, a love for education because at the end of the day that'll encourage students to continue on and you know I'll just plug that free um, two-year education junior colleges would help um, immensely mm -hmm. with students pursuing higher education too mm -hmm. um, and I think Florida does a good job I think the bright futures and you know some of the opportunities that we get here in this state um, are much better than you know what some students have in other states and really do encourage um, yeah. you know, people going to get bachelor's degrees. Mm. A big thing too, my mom was a teacher. So kind of like to relate it back to the first half, you were talking about how, you know, politicians have jobs that they don't want to lose. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to do certain things to try to keep that job. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that goes against maybe their values or their morals. And teachers to a lesser degree, you know, they uh, uh, their jobs are kind of based on test scores mm -hmm. a lot. So mm -hmm. it's like, as much as they want to foster a love for education, mm -hmm. they're kind of forced to, we have to meet these standards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a whole other discussion. But just, you know, everything you're saying is playing mm -hmm. into that. It's like, mm -hmm. maybe we need to rethink the philosophy behind mm -hmm. education mm. and start implementing laws and solutions that are behind that philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think there are, as this conversation has showcased, there are many things that need to be reformed mm -hmm. systemically. Mm -hmm. I mean, just cut it off, right? You know, just like, let's stop this now. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and But I, I do have so much respect for people who want to teach and mm -hmm. want to do these things. And then they don't realize what they're getting themselves into. Right. And it's, I mean, hindsight's 2020, but by that time, sometimes it's too late. Right. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to making a difference, making a change, um, and this is on, this is in a weird way tying to like the question that I asked, like, how do you decide what to attack in a friendly way? <laughs> but when it comes to reforming something and when it comes to the small steps that you need to take as a person, what do you think you could start out with? Because I think this conversation has done a wonderful job of highlighting the large scale changes that will inevitably take place mm -hmm. because we're the, you know, we're you, Alexis, are going to be yeah, going in there and changing real. it. I'm super excited. <laughs> um, but as a normal everyday human, let's say you are unaffiliated with a political party. Mm -hmm. Let's say you don't have a college degree. Let's say you're also an immigrant. And I don't want to overload you with this, like, okay, uh, how do I solve this person's life right now? <laughs> but the small steps that just an everyday individual can take toward making the change they want to see. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really being truly and authentically yourself. I think a lot of times we have people who, um, you know, 
immigrant or not, um, you know, all educational levels try to, you know, become a person that they think will, you know, help them excel or, you know, climb the social ladder um, because that's what they think, you know, um, is best for them, but it's not truly what what they believe. I think that mm. if people were more authentic with, you know, what they believe and, you know, spoke out about the things that they believed in, and this isn't even, you don't have to go to a protest and speak to hundreds of people. It starts with, you know, speaking to your friends and family about the things that you believe in, you know, exchanging information and knowledge that you have. I think that, um, you know, starting the conversation and having those open and transparent um, conversations about issues that we're told we shouldn't be talking about at the dinner table um, is <laughs> is what what really you hmm. know opens the door to to real change. I think that you know I have family members that are um, staunch Republicans. I have you know people acquaintances and, and friends even that you know, same thing, disagree with a lot of the things that I believe in, but I never steer away from, you know, sharing the things that I think are important, what I believe in, and, you know, my values, and being able to, you know, be honest about that is is the start to, to you know, creating real change and finding compromise and really fixing a lot of the problems that we all acknowledge um, there are. I think that, you know, there are Republicans and Democrats that agree that, there are certain problems that need to be changed. We just disagree on how to fix those problems. <laughs> right. um, and, and we have to have those conversations. So, mm. Well, we're getting close to the end here. Mm -hmm. So unless you have any other questions, Caleb, we're going to get to the final one, which is how are the things you're passionate about and the things that you're involved in, how have they changed the world around you and that could be your own perspective that could be literal physical change mm -hmm. how, how have they changed the world around yeah you? i always talk about there's this exchange of inspiration so i've worked a ton with with you know people who are you know so much younger than me there were when i started my organization i was working with students who were in like third and fourth grade and now they're going into high school um, which is crazy, but I think that there is something to learn from every single person that you talk to. And the more that I've done these things, the more amazing people that I've met, um, you know, in times that have felt so, you know, terrible, like there's not a positive outcome that could, you know, could happen in this past legislative session. I've made some amazing friends protesting together and standing up for the things that we believe in. And I think that, you know, finding those, you know, positive outlets um, in trying times is really important. And that's something that I've been able to do through the advocacy thing that I've done and, you know, the involvements that I've had. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Today's conversation was amazing. Alexis, seriously. And I'm, and I, <laughs> I say this every time. I promise I'm being disingenuous. I'm just gassing you up because you're an amazing person. But thank you for being so hopeful. Thank you for being so driven to do what you do because it gives me hope. But, you know, and like people like you, people like Adam, you know, people like Cole Carrier, um, people like Jack Hitchcock, who I think we're eventually going to have on. <laughs> um, but it's just like people who are driven to make a change around them. And 
even if it starts small and at least is something big. I just, I think you've done a wonderful job of highlighting how it's realistic. <laughs> it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to emphasize something that you said before that, you know, we're all for the most part, good people. You know, it's an exchange of inspiration. And for those of you listening, that was Alexis Dorman. And hopefully you found some hope today. Thanks for listening to The Only Constant. We show how people use their passions to change the world around them every day. To learn more about our mission, visit OnlyConstantPodcast.com. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at OnlyConstantPodcast to see even more and stay updated with the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Spotify, leaving a review or rating for the podcast helps us learn what's working and what's not. We value your feedback. Hopefully, you found some hope today.